You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Hello. I feel like saying, welcome, dear brothers and sisters. <laughs> I always wanted to say that. Um, ladies and gentlemen, friends, <clears throat> Peter Carey is a writer of immense seriousness whose prose can be funny, a literary writer who's also a master storyteller, a poet who can make you sit up into the small hours of the morning, burning to see what happens next, a writer who can make a passage set in the past be profoundly about now, and a passage set now appear to illuminate the past, a writer whose novels have an uncompromising intelligence being always about larger and more complex themes than the characters realize, and yet being always about people so beautifully incarnated on the page that you walk through the weather of their lives. A writer who once began a novel with the fantastic sentences, my name is Herbert Badgery, I'm 139 years old and something of a celebrity. They come and look at me and wonder how I do it. There are weeks when I wonder the same. Whole stretches of terrible time. It is hard to believe that you can feel so bad and still not die. <laughs> a literary stylist of uncommon gifts, a lover of the English language, but one who has never published a pretentious line. A great artist who is always writing to be read, never to brandish his knowledge of the dictionary. A writer who never explains, but always reveals, who's careful and scrupulous in his choice of words, but yet who can make you silent before the sun bursts of his language, awed that such beauty is possible. There are not many novelists who qualify under all those headings, but Peter Carey, one of them, is with us tonight. His work is read, admired, and loved all over the world. The list of the accolades he's won is too long to read out. He's often written about history, and indeed he has made history, being one of only two novelists to have ever won the Booker Prize twice. Do you feel, I don't want to jinx him, but you feel he might score a hat-trick before he retires, I'll put it that way. An Australian, he's written a great Irish novel, also a great novel of America. For many novelists of my own generation, and later generations, his work has long been a kind of touchstone and its author a kind of hero. I think with great fondness of one day when, as a young writer, I met the great John McGahern, and he asked me what I was writing now. I answered that I was trying to write a book set on a ship during the Great Irish Famine, but was stuck about a hundred pages in and couldn't find a solution. And the greatest Irish writer of the late 20th century said to me, have you read Peter Carey? I said, of course I had. McGahern said, read him again. <laughs> he was right. In books like Oscar and Lucinda, The True History of the Kelly Gang, and Illiwacker, and Bliss, and My Life is a Fake, Peter Carey has demonstrated time and again that literature is best when it is brave. He has Dickens' sense that almost anything can be achieved in language, and any human emotion made real. Loss, pride, despair, simple joy, Ambition and its cousins, disappointment and desire. 
that come to us in his work, hand in hand with ideas, always founded on the mysterious empathy that makes us want to read at all. In his new novel, A Long Way From Home, he's restless and ambitious as ever. A story of love, of grief, of the labyrinths of landscape, of betrayal and homeland, of secret maps and milestones. It is a novel partly set in the past, in other ways a fable for our times. A deeply moving story that has been garnering rave reviews. Its scope is dazzling and the pleasures it affords immense. Tonight, he'll read to us briefly from his new book and then we'll talk for a while. So it's a great honour and a pleasure and a joy to welcome back to Dublin from Bacchus Marsh in Victoria, Australia, via New York City, one of the world's great novelists, Peter Carey. <laughs> so we just leave now. <laughs> I, I think it's very hard to continue from that. And uh, thank you. You all know what a wonderful writer well, Joe is. So it means so much coming from you. Thank you. You want me to read from them? Yeah, just for a little, little bit. bit so, so this is just a few minutes. Um, there's a difficulty uh, immediately in that well, you know if you read it on the page there'll be about six signals in the first paragraph that the voice is a woman's voice. And here I am. <laughs> so I don't know what we do about this. Um, it's harder to imagine when I have my own voice contradicting what's here. But here it is, um, the very, from the very beginning of the novel. For a girl to defeat one father is a challenge but there were two standing between me and what I wanted, which was not to fiddle-faddle a lovely little fellow named Titch Bobbs. The first father was my own. When he discovered that I, his teeny Irene, his little mouse, his petite-sized mademoiselle, had all by herself proposed matrimony to a man of five foot three, he spat his Wheaties in his plate. Titch's father was number two. He came out of the gate at a gallop, 100% in favour. I was a beauty, a bobby dazzler, until in the hallway by the coat stand he gave me cause to slap his face. My sister was older and, and as they say, more experienced. She could not see why I would want so small a husband. Did I plan to breed a team of mice? Ah, bloody ha. Beverly was five foot two and a half and always breaking off engagements to Lanky Lurch or gigantic Dino or the famous football player whose name I'm not ignorant enough to mention. I would have been afraid to shake his hand, forget the other business. Beverly made her bed and got what you might expect. 30 hour labors, and heads as big as pumpkins. <laughs> My own children were as tiny and perfect as their daddy, ideal in their proportions, in the lovely coordination of their limbs, in the pink, aptly cheeks they inherited from Titch, the smile they got from me. My sister 
could not abide my happiness. She would spend years looking for evidence that it was fake. When her first husband ran away to New Zealand, she wrote me a spiteful letter saying I was more interested in my husband than in my kiddies. She said her boys were everything to her. She knew, she wrote, I only married Titch because of the money I would get out of him. Well, she was upset, of course. Why wouldn't she be? She'd married a bastard. She was divorced, she said, without a penny. So could she please go and live in the childhood home we had both inherited and whose sales she had always managed to impede? Could Titch and I have used the money? She didn't ask. Would it have changed our lives? Of course. I agreed on a peppercorn rent and kept my feelings to myself. Beverly liked to say that I was willful, which was an idea she got from mum. But mum liked me being willful. She got a real kick out of seeing how I got my way. Of course, she was a bit the same, mum. And she was blessed with such neat, level teeth and cheekbones, you would do anything to see her smile, even if you had to buy her a washing machine to make her do it. She got Dad to purchase the Ford, which was what brought Titch to our door in Geelong, Victoria, Australia. It was Victory in Europe Day, May the 8th, 1945. No one will ever know how Mum planned to utilise the Ford. Drive down to Colac and see her sister after church. That was one story not even Dad could swallow. Didn't matter. He went on and wrote the cheque to the salesman, Dan Bobst, who, as I discovered, when I opened the door on VE Day, had thrown in free driving lessons, which would be supplied by his sonny. Oh, Lord, what a sight that sonny was. There on our front porch with his cardboard suitcase on a Tuesday morning. I learned he was to stay with us. Poor mum. Alas, she never got to put the key in the ignition. And everyone was so upset and busy with the funeral, no one told the young man that he should leave. Well, he had nowhere else to stay, so he unpacked his port and awaited instructions, as he later liked to say. The Ford was parked in our driveway with no sign that it was now part of the deceased estate. My mum was in the Mount Dunedin Cemetery and the new boarder was the only one who helped me go through her things. He said nothing about the car or about the lessons he had been expecting to give to the deceased. He asked me if I knew how to drive. I told him that if he could be home by six at night, he could have tea with us. In the midst of all the sadness, a pretty red-cheeked man was a great comfort I could not do without. I held my breath, I cooked for him, and he scraped his plate clean and helped with the drying up. He was neat. When I cried, he comforted me. He left talcum powder on the bathroom floor. In the nights at Western Beach, when you could hear the forlorn anchor chains on the old warships anchored in Carayo Bay. He told me stories of his father, which he thought were funny. These were much more important than I knew. In any case, my eyes stung hot 
to hear that the lovely boy had broken his arm swinging the prop of the wretched father's monoplane and that the old bully had taught him to land by sitting behind him in the navigator's seat and thumping his slender back with his fist until he pushed the stick down sufficiently and that he had abandoned him to stay with a pair of old Irish bachelors at Bullangarook until they had learned to drive their purchase. The sonny was named Titch, although he was sometimes Zack, which was what they called a sixpence, and a Zack was therefore half a shilling or half a bob, which was, of course, his father's name, but forget all that. He was always Titch. God, Jesus, and it seemed I was put on earth to love your tortured body and your impy, joyous soul. How could I predict, dear Beverly, what sort of life my heart's desire would lead me to? Our dad was still alive on the day I first set eyes on Titch. My babies were not yet born. I couldn't even drive a car. We had not yet arrived at the era of Holden versus Ford. There was not even a Red X around Australia reliability trial, although that, the greatest Australian car race of the century, is a story I will get to in the end. Thank you. Beautiful. You're the most beautiful woman I've ever heard, really. Um, Bacchus Marsh, the beautifully named town, um, it's the town you grew up in yourself, features in the book. Mm. Tell us, take us back to what that was like, because it strikes me that there's a great um, tenderness and special vividness in the writing about the town. Yes, uh, I suppose. Uh, Bacchus Marsh, it's a wonderful name. It's actually named because uh, an English captain uh, having retired from the army uh, and you can imagine what the English captain was because he couldn't have been too posh because he wouldn't have been in Australia if he was um, so, so this young captain Bacchus arrived in Bacchus Marsh and built a bloody manor house and if you want to look at reinvention in another country um, and the town ended up being ca called after this captain Bacchus so it's not the god of wine oh, what a the shame. town has seven pubs uh, which is doing its best to compensate, but uh, which were all well patronised. It, it was a town of about 5,000 people when I was a kid. Um, my parents had a GM dealership in the main street. Um, which is also forms part of the source material. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when, when, it, when it became clear that, that you know, there was going to be a Red X trial and somebody... My, I was going to have to drive around the country and the Red X trial, clearly it was going to be someone with a... And they often were car dealers. So certainly my family never entered the Red X trial nor even dreamed of entering the Red X trial, but I did rely on, on the family business uh, in that respect. And my dad used to sell cars to farmers and my mother used to sit in the, in the, in the uh, spare parts department on a high chair and men <laughs> would come... Into the, into the business and they would say, I want to see the manager. And my mother would say, I am the manager. And then it would sort of go from there. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, she certainly loved to, to contradict the, 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 the mechanics who would come across from the workshop you know, claiming that what they needed was a 1003456 gasket for a F.E. Holden. And, and my mother would know better. Yeah. Um, and... Um, 
I guess I'm making a sound sort of argumentative and perverse, but I was a child and I loved her, and I did, exp I did experience that point of view of being a woman in, in Bacchus Marsh in Australia at that time. So there's a lot of Irene who, who starts this. There's nothing of my mother's character in Irene, but there's a lot of, no of knowing that environment as a child. And Were there books in the house, Peter? Was that, was that part of We were very fond of the Reader's Digest condensed books. I don't know if you're familiar with them, Joe. Yeah. Yes. So we had a lot of those. Um, and also a lot of Reader's Digests. You know, <laughs> laughter is the best medicine. Yeah. Humour in uniform. So I'm told. Well, yeah, the perfect squelch. I remember them all. Um, not, a, not a lot of, of, of more literary books. Maybe some Rudyard Kipling, A.A. Uh, a. Milne. And a wonderful Australian um, children's book, sort of a children's book, uh, called The Magic Pudding, which is a story set in the depression of a, of a, of a sailor, a very short penguin called Sam Sornoff, uh, a rather sort of bourgeois character called Bunyip Bluegum, who's been working for his uncle as a lawyer, and The Magic Pudding, which is a vicious little thing with a little round head, which is the pudding basin, and spindly legs, and tending to pinch people and, you know, not be nice, but it's the depression, and, and, and if you, it's, it's steak and kidney pie, and then you turn it around twice, and it's plum duff. And so this, that, I still love that book. And when my, my brother, who's, I'm 74, he's 84, when we see each other, we quote from the magic pudding, back and forward. <laughs> we say things that would be incomprehensible to you, like, no singing God save the king to men with colds in the head, for instance. And the, that's not at all funny, but it is to us. <laughs> and you just reminded me of a, a beautiful um, passage of yours in Oscar and Lucinda, where, where the little boy Oscar lives in the house where Christmas is yes. not celebrated. Yes. Because a, a particularly intensely biblical form of, of Christianity that is yes. looking over him. But the maids, I think they may be the Irish maids in the kitchen, sneak him down on Christmas morning and give him a spoonful of Christmas pudding. And it's just so beautifully described, all the tastes and the sensations of... of well, you know, it's you know, the Christmas pudding, according to his father, you know, is the... I don't know, I can't remember now, it's a long time. But it like, it's like the fruit of Satan. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the father sort of snatches the pudding from the boy's mouth and hurls it into the fire, but it's too late <laughs> because the boy has tasted <laughs> the, 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 the magic. Forbidden pudding. Yeah. Forbidden. So, so there you are, and you're a boy growing up in this <clears throat> town, and there are readers' digests in the house. And you, you say in this, in this book, one of the many beautiful sentences in this book, one of the characters says, reading is an analgesic. <laughs> now, I just wondered, I'm trying to get a picture of you. In your oh, I was I, I wasn't reading. Yeah. So when did it come, where did this come from? Oh, the reading or the storytelling? No, the, the writing and the storytelling. Oh, well, well I, the writing only came for something to do when I'd failed at something else. I, 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 uh, I always thought I was going to be a, an organic chemist. And I imagined some, uh, the magical life I would find really within the periodic table. In, 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 and... And still, I think it's rather magical because if you look at the periodic table of the elements, you understand yeah. by their structure yeah. how they're going to behave. And I sometimes think that I got from literature what I saw in the periodic table. So that's what I, I failed dramatically and I had to get a job, but I got a job in an advertising agency for no other reason than my then girlfriend had a brother who worked 
in retail advertising. And I fell amongst writers, <laughs> put it rather biblically perhaps, um, and um, they were writing and they were reading and, and uh, you know, I, my parents had sent me from this predominantly working class town uh, to a, a very posh uh, Australian ruling class boarding school. Uh, which was certainly a cultural shock uh, 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 that I've never forgotten. Um, but, and it was meant to be a good school, but really I didn't read, read very much. Maybe, you know, Shakespeare was important from that, but it was only after I failed at university and went into the advertising agency that you know, I discovered these things I could not have imagined. And, and then of that time, you know, Joyce was certainly a big part of that time, and Beckett. But the thing I really remember particularly with someone who, 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 who is, is a child of Joyce in a way, is William Faulkner. And I read as I lay dying and I could not have imagined that such a thing even existed in the world, that there would be this sort of jewel-like language and uh, I'd never seen anything like it. And so... Astonishing book. Yeah. Yes. And so I, I wanted to do that too. Right. And I was young enough and foolish enough not to quite understand how little I knew, how little... I'd read, and that I was declaring that I was going to walk out onto the same field as Virginia Woolf and Proust and all of these people quite confidently and, and, and ambitiously and would tell people who would laugh at me because I was a copywriter in an advertising agency. Um, but that's, that's where my sort of literary education began. So what were the first things that you wrote? Were they short stories or plays or attempts at Faulkner-like... Well, short stories were beneath me because they were not substantial enough. <laughs> also, in terms of what I would read, uh, I, I did understand that, you know, um, Australian, anything Australian would probably not be very good. <laughs> um, You're very far from home here, Peter. <laughs> You're a, a long way from home, in fact. We all are, Joe. <laughs> um, so do you remember much about those, those early... Yes, yes. I mean, I, I, you know, I, read a, I read a novel and then I read another novel. The novel, the first novel that I wrote had a little, little tiny bit of it published in, 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 a, in an anthology which was called something like Under 25 or something. And it was even mentioned in a review. Right. So in all the things that I wrote, and I wrote about three or four or even five novels, depending on how much I've drunk or how much, how I want to count... Um, they all failed one way or another, but something happened with each one that managed to sustain me and give me hope that I would do something better. But when I had written the three or four or five novels, uh, the last of which I wrote in London in about 1969, I went back to Australia and I was so sick of failing. I was so sick of spending a year or two years on something and then realising that it, was, it never really had a chance. There was a problem with it from the beginning. So I thought, I'll write short stories. And I was like somebody who's been you know, trying to design and build grandiose palaces uh, and suddenly thinks, well, maybe it'd be a better idea to just build some sheds. And if they, if they fall down, who cares, you know? And, 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 uh, and it was just, I was just old enough, I'd finally read enough, um, the stories started to work and some of my oldest friends, you know, 
people who'd been older than me in that advertising agency and had published books before stopped saying it doesn't work. You're still in Australia then? I'd, I'd, I'd been out of Australia for a couple of years. I, I wanted to ask you, I suppose, because of one of the central, not themes, but stories, pictures in the book, about your sense as a boy and as a young man uh, growing up in Australia of the indigenous peoples yeah. in Australia. Were, were they close to you? Did you know them? Did no. you know of them or their stories? Of them, of them in a weird ghostly sort of a way, I would say. Um, I, the only, the first indigenous person I am aware of having met was a folk singer who I met in Australia in 1961. Um, it's quite possible that, to, that there were other Aboriginal people who lived in the town in plain sight and were not declaring themselves and are not acknowledged and we weren't, didn't know that they were there. But as far as I'm, I knew, there were no Aboriginal people in that community and I never knew any. Now, the interesting thing, if you went down by the creek, you might see a tree with a great huge bark scar, which might have been a canoe, for instance. Um, in other words, we knew that, we all knew that Aboriginal people had lived there once, uh, and they weren't there now. We knew that um, if we put a stamp on a letter, it might well have, have, have had the portrait of a really powerful-looking Aboriginal man, but we didn't know any. And we, I think we put the Aboriginal people on our stamps in, actually in the same way that we put kangaroos and platypuses on our stamps to take from us to demonstrate how we, would, what, how we might have a different character to another country, but in fact, really, the whole of the country, other, underside of the country is the, the, the hope that the Aboriginal people will die out or be bred out or be removed. But we weren't, I was not thinking about that at, at, at that time. So we were, and I remember stories of my grandfather, or might have been his father, going through the bush at night to get a job in Castle, Maine and having to sleep out and hearing the, the noises of Aboriginal, he said, corroborates. And what I understand from the story was the terror of being a white man. But that's that sense of you know, ignorance, alienation, separation from those people. The, the, the way you put it there, that Australian children <clears throat> or teenagers, or everybody, would have known that the indigenous people were there once and now they weren't. Did nobody in school ever say why? Well, we were too busy, I think, learning British history, right. which did not include, you know, genocides and things like that, uh, and maybe a bit of Greek history. No. We, well, I'm, I might be being really unfair, but I don't think so. And as Willie, the schoolteacher, discovers or thinks about early, early in the book, all that land around us, there's rich sheep farms between Bacchus Marsh and Melbourne, um, owned by millionaires, people who became millionaires, been the site of a sort of violent racial war where white people fought and killed black people to possess and own the land. Um, that hadn't been so long ago. Yeah. And uh, I was 
in Australia recently talking about this book and, and people did stand up in different places to say um, it would normally be a woman and it would normally be somebody of about my age and they would stand up as if they were going to ask a question and then they would say well I lived at such and such a property and uh, I used to love riding horses and I wouldn't never, I'd never ride to a certain part of the property because that was where my grandmother told me they put Took, rounded up the Aboriginal people and shot them dead. And I wouldn't go there. And this happened more than once. And one of the women was from Bacchus Marsh. Uh, and this was not a story of, of murder, but it was a story of, of, of her father on a farm in a place that I knew really well, continually picking up Aboriginal tools, weapons, all sorts of things from the property that I used to drive, drive past and all the time. So all of that was there, the debris of, of, of this dispossession. There's a lovely moment in the book where the couple go to Sydney and um, she says we've never been to Sydney before. And we've, ne we've never seen the Opera House. We've never yeah. seen Bondi Beach and yeah. all of that. And it chimed with me with a, with a, a little um, personal moment the first time I went to Australia with my dad and my brother um, probably 25 years ago. Mm. It was a great trip because I met two uncles who I, I had never met. They emigrated right. the year that I was born. And one of them had a Dublin accent. He sounded like he came from Francis Street, which is um, 15 minutes down, down that way. And the other had an Australian accent that he had acquired um, because he said he got so fed up with people in Australia not understanding him. So we were doing all the touristy things and we went to see the opera house and, and my uncle said, um, this, is, this is great, you know, come to see the opera house because I've, I've never seen it before. And he'd lived in Australia for 40 years. I thought he meant he'd never been to, a show, he'd never been to an <laughs> opera there. He said he'd, he'd, just, he'd never done that. And he, he said that um, Australians aren't curious. Um, and I wonder if there's something in that, and I, I wonder if there are a lot of things that it would be better not to be curious about. Well, we don't want to be curious about things we might be frightened of, and the, the Sydney Opera House might be one of those things as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I meant not for us, not for our sort of people, that, that, that thing. Uh, yes, I think there's an enormous amount we don't want to know about. Do you, do you think that this book, because I had a sense as, as one of your readers, that this book has been coming a long time. Yes, I think I think that well, one of the it it is not an issue that I th I can remember in my adult life not being aware of. And if you're going to write about the country, you have to address it at some level because that's a basic thing. So Illywacker is a story you know, narrated by a liar, and he says the country is built on a number of great lies, and one of them is that the land was not being cultivated or, or, or used by the inhabitants and so therefore could be stolen. And there was legal doctrine called ter terra nullius, uh, lands not being used so we can have it. And so that was British justification for taking Australia, the law of abiding nation. Um, and Oscar and Lucinda, which isn't remembered for this, but really the, what underlies Oscar and Lucinda is the story of a, a, of a glass church, which is, I really thought of even before I knew it was glass. It's a box of Christian stories. Fighting in a, long, on a river on a barge through a landscape filled with indigenous stories. Yeah. So it's the story of the you know, destruction of, <clears throat> of Aboriginal culture and, and 
So I, I, th I think Oscar and Lucinda is um, remembered for the amazing image of the, the Crystal Church. And um, funny enough, the, your portrayal of the landscape in this book, um, almost as a character, I mean, the, the, the presence and the reverberation of landscape in this book, it kept bringing me back to Oscar yeah. and Lucinda. I, I kind of thought of them as two bookends, you know, uh, and, and books that are um, in an underground water way rather, rather connected. So it, it just feels that that it had been growing a long time, um, this book for you. Do you remember the genesis of this? Do you remember oh, yes. starting out at this? Tell us about that. Well, as is often the case with books, you know, you, they, they begin when you have a, a way to sort of open a door into something. You know, it's, uh, and for me, it was just thinking rather sentimentally about you know, this Red X reliability trial. Uh, tell us maybe as part of right. what that is. Well, it's... I have to keep using the word race. And it was indeed a race, but it was not promoted as a race or thought of as a race, but rather as a um, test of endurance of everyday cars, the sort of cars that you, 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 you drove to the shops in or went to work in. And, um, and they would just go over 9,600 miles of very, very rough territory. And if I say sloppily, tough enough to break your car in half, I'm not really joking. Um, so, and there were 260 people entered it, 260 crews, sorry, cars entered, and the whole country went nuts. Uh, the Red X trial before it had begun was on the, in the newspaper all the time. Uh, I don't think we had television then, but we certainly had radio, and it was certainly a big event. We were sort of in love with ourselves. We were in love with the notion of the country that we had. Uh, we were a little bit like dogs peeing around the border of our, of our territory, which sort of was what it was about. It was another way of conquering the landscape. And it was, yes, and it was a form of conquering. Absolutely, it was. So, um, I, and I, rem I remembered the... the it's like anybody who's seen Amacord by Fellini will remember there are scenes from his childhood, magical things that happen, like the ocean liner, which they all row out to sea in the middle of the night. My sort of memory of the, of the Red X trial is um, being in the main street at Bacchus Marsh. I think it was two in the morning, but if it was 11 o'clock at night, what the hell? It was still like two o'clock in the morning to me. And, and uh, these cars coming down the hill, all covered in dust with these great bull bars on the front and meshes on their lights and, and, and drivers. Wait. And they were, sort of, they were sort of heroic figures, but, and some of them famous. Jack Brabham, a really famous racing driver, was one of them, but also um, uh, Jack Davey, who had a radio show. And Jack Davey drove down the Stanford Hill right past my parents' business, and as he went past, he wound down his window and I was standing there, and he waved, and he said what he said on the radio every day. Hi-ho, everybody! <laughs> um, so there was, Magic, yeah. there was all, <laughs> that sort of stuff. So, so I was just thinking about that, and I was, of course, I, I went online. I found there were all these old newsreels of, of, of the Red X. And that was amazing, and you, know, very, you think something's lost totally and there it is represented at least in a particular way. And watching it, I sort of became slowly aware that in all the, the, the newsreel crews 
who were following, setting up to get all this stuff, all their cutaway shots, mostly of things like a rabbit runs across the field, or atypically a goat, or something. And there weren't a lot of Aboriginal people in the pictures. And as it gets further north, you know it's getting into territory that white people, you know, there are people there with big stations and big farms and they know how to make money from it and survive it. But we really know, we know it's really not white, white fella country, really. And, uh, and we know a lot more about Aboriginal culture now than we did in 1955. And I'm watching the, this Peugeot 203 go through a cloud of dust and thinking, you guys got no idea where you are. You could be driving up the aisle of a cathedral and you wouldn't know. And indeed they were so often because what we know now um, is that the whole, this civilization that we supplanted, which was a stable civilization for 50,000 years, was crisscrossed with stories and trails and ritual and ceremony. And we're busy making our little maps that says careful for the cattle grid here and it's rough here and what, what. But, well they don't call them maps, but I would represent their stories and culture with a series of lines and maps. And I thought these two lots of maps on top of each other and I thought that's a book. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything about the people, but I knew there had to be a Red X trial, of course. And I guess I knew there had to be a moment of confrontation and discovery with history that the ignored Aboriginal history and the history of colonization. But uh, it, was, it was knowing there were two sets of maps that, and I really did think that with enough research and enough work, I would find the moment, you know, where you sort of went over the cattle grid, you know, turned left through the creek, and that was just where the mythic rainbow whiskered serp serpent crossed the road on, on another story from, from ancient times. But I never did find those connecting points. So it's two kinds of map of the same place, yeah. the same reality. Yeah. There are other maps on top, which are like the maps of the pastoral stations, for instance, supplant. But those two were the ones I would... You're, you're, you're interested in maps, aren't you? They crop up in your fiction quite a lot. And yeah, you would think I, I, would, I would be better at reading them, wouldn't you? <laughs> what, what does it come from? Do you collect them? Do you no. study them? No. I, no. I, I know, I've noticed them crop up. Yeah, I, I, do, I do really rather like the idea of maps of things. I like... Sometimes we admire things that we, it's not normally a great gift to actually understand. Does, I looked today online and there's actually uh, people are writing um, entire um, thesis and learned scholarly articles about, um, about your interest in maps. Very good. So if you, if you, if, if you ever want to find out more about it. That's what I was thinking, I'll read them with interest. Um, the song lines... Mind you, they can be often quite difficult to read, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would have brought along a paragraph to read for you, <laughs> except it was so... I couldn't find anything that wasn't completely... Um, yeah. Urgent. Yes. Um, anyway, the song lines you mentioned in a number of interviews. Yeah, well... Important book. For people who don't know about that book, tell us what it is. Well, I'm sure that anthropologists were aware of these sort of story lines that are so, and we could just call it that in, in, in uh, Aboriginal culture and life, the notion of the, of the land, 
that there are mythic <laughs> stories that people learn and they, fo they follow the paths of those, they look after the land. The, the, those storylines have all sorts of purpose, religious sort of purpose, but they might have a very practical purpose as well. For instance, connecting waterholes so that you're not going to die or your children are not going to die. So the land and story and religion, all of these things and, and ceremony are all put together. I don't think, I don't think we really generally, the non-specialist population of Australia had any clue about these things until a bloody Englishman <laughs> called Bruce Chatwin uh, came to Australia and um, wrote about these song lines. Yeah. He, he, called, he called the book. Now there are people that say he never left his caravan but I'm a novelist so I really would support anyone that never, never left their caravan. He certainly wrote a very important book and it changed must have just yeah. changed, everything. changed everything. And we, I think it must have just pissed us off so much that, that it was the palms. The, again. He came and did this, and what, what had we been doing? But as I said, I'm sure anthropologists were aware of these things at that time. It was. You talk in the book, and, and you've talked in many of the interviews around the book about white Australia, and that 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 idea. And there'll be people here tonight who's. Um, brothers and sisters and children and loved ones who are, are in Australia now. I mean, Australia is really back uh, for us, you know, it has been in recent years. What would, what would you say to them and to us about how Australia has changed? What kind of place is Australia? Oh. Has it in, been informed and enlightened by some of the things that you're talking about? Or is there still, uh, are there still some of those undercurrents? Oh, well, firstly, I think that um, Australia today, and generally, is very aware of the situation of Aboriginals in Australia. If you go to a place like Perth, which is you know not not on the liberal cutting edge of life, um, and as Francis and I did, you, you, you're stuck there for a couple of days, and so you're watching quite a bit of television. The news is filled with things about Aboriginal land rights. So there's a way of, there's a way of looking at this that says you're in a very you know, in a very evolved place. And if you compare that you know to certain things about say the United States, which is much more complicated and messy, um, I, I think that Australians have a much higher awareness of the original peoples than Americans generally mm -hmm. would. Um, but I also think there's, um, there's still enormous racism. Um, and if you, there is a, a great resistance, uh, less now probably than there might have been five or 10 years ago, but there's enormous resistance for revisiting these things that I re revisited. And I think there's... People, is there really? There's still unease? Well, the reception of my book, I don't want to get this all wrong, because it's, yeah. the reception of the book was really, really very positive, and people yeah. really, the people who were likely to be here, like the people who are likely to be here tonight, really welcomed the book and the things it was talking about, and it's not like, uh, as ideas, they're new, it's yeah. in this expression, they liked it. Um, but there are still, like John Howard, our, uh, late, not late really, but, uh, lost Prime Minister, former Prime Minister, um, hated so much of people you know, talking, talking about the colonisation and genocide and things like that, that he called it the black armband view of history. Uh, because we can't admit 
what happened. Because if we admit that somehow we have been the beneficiaries of a genocide, um, we're weakened. And we're like, it's like being told, all right, pal, yeah, come on, man up. You know, we, we won this war, we killed these buggers. Now this is ours. So don't go weeping, you know, because that's weak. And I think it's something like that. I don't, no one's ever quite articulated that to me, but it's what it feels like. So there's a great re reluctance to take responsibility. And when a newspaper headlines line says that, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I'm feeling guilty or writing about our guilt, that's, that's, a, that's a sort of a way of undermining my position to talk about guilt. Um, so it's still, I, I would say it's still, very char still really charged. I think quite enormous progress has been made and um, among Aboriginal leaders, I spoke to one in particular, said, well, okay, it's slow, but think of what we've done. And there has been enormous progress made, uh, particularly in terms of, of land rights uh, and the establishment of ancient ownership of land by groups and individuals. But if you, if you spend some time in the north, the northwest of Australia, you'll understand the enormous um, trauma of colonization uh, and, and, and an invasion by a totally different culture and you'll see the damage done to the people and you, you'll know it's not fixed. <laughs> and, you'll know, and you'll know that they're our citizens and they're our neighbors and I just kept on saying, it's not a question about guilt, it's about responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so if your neighbor is suffering from an event, even long ago, that's benefited you, then it behoves you to, to pay attention to your neighbor's conditions and do what you can to assist. And the, the afterword of the novel is itself very interesting, where you talk about some of the people who you spoke to and some of the sources that you went to in order to, in order to get it right and to write about the subject yes. of dignity and, and respect. Um, and you've also, in other interviews, you've said that when you, when you mentioned to friends um, a number of years ago when you embarked on this novel, what kind of novel it was, that people were wildly worried for you. And, well, I, and, and maybe those two things are, are related a bit. So maybe you tell us why they would have been so worried and, and, and then maybe just some of the things in the afterwards, the, the, the great lengths that you went to to make sure that the story was told with respect. Well, racial politics are always really fraught with misunderstanding and and mis and. and misunderstood hurts and you when when people and people are continually not honest they're continually nervous um, so in Australia there's a lot of indigenous people who are really pissed and they they're their right to be <laughs> and so in the thing of being patronized and ignorantly understood and sympathised with, well, they, they, they get angry and, and as, as, they, they should because you know, lazy, well-meaning people are, are no use to anybody. So, so people get frightened that Indigenous people will be angry with them if they enter into the conversation about race because so my friends are thinking that I'm 
and also I'm in New York, so I must be particularly ignorant. And, um, <laughs> and so they worry that I'm going to get into something I don't understand and, and, and that everyone's going to be mad with me. And, uh, but it seems to me that, that it's the whole issue of racial divides is that they are divides and people don't cross the line and people don't talk to their neighbours and people don't understand the history of their neighbours. And the great thing, if you're a novelist, you have a wonderful excuse, which is much harder in real life, to go and talk to your neighbour. And you can arrive and say, you know, I'm, I'm here to understand and I'm here to learn and I'm here to write about this and people will welcome you. If, you, if you're not a writer, it's hard to imagine how you would duplicate that just as an individual. You could, if you had sufficient character and courage. But, so I had the ch a chance as a writer to do what I should do as a citizen. And that is, do the work, listen, read for three years, talk to people continually. And when I'd finished writing my book, uh, which is a book in most ways really about whiteness, but still has <laughs> impacts impacts uh, very seriously on, on Aboriginal history and Aboriginal people. I had Aboriginal readers. I mean, because there's sort of an assumption that you write this and, and no Aboriginal people are going to read it because they don't, you must think they don't read novels or they don't, whatever. So I had Aboriginal readers and that was really good. You and mean I, in the course of writing the book you would send sections? No, I didn't it. do it in the, in the course of it, but afterwards. And, but in the course of it, there were, well, there were lots of things I did in the pro... So for instance, you know, so this is a really minor technical thing, but you know, I've got some patches of dialogue where I have yeah. Aboriginal people talking. Well, I know what I want them to say. I have an idea of what they would say. I'm also totally sure that I can't get that quite right by myself. So there's a woman in Fitzroy Crossing who reads it and talks with a woman in, in, in Perth and uh, they come back with their suggestions and we talk some more and I assemble the dialogue. It's just like a form of... But I know it's right. I'm totally confident. And so later, when the book's finished and other Indigenous people read this, there's no problem with them accepting how I have these characters speak. This is sort of cheating, which novelists between themselves know they do all the time, but so it probably, it may, it may sound awful that I'm having other people writing a little bit of dialogue for me, but... Uh, I, I wish I could get you to write my next novel for me. <laughs> um, quite apart from the very serious matter of what um, Aboriginal or Indigenous people might think, there's another set of uneases around all of this these days, isn't there? There's a, a spirit abroad that novelists from a particular culture yeah. should not or yes. you know, are not able to write about people who are not exactly the same as them. Now, I suspect I know what you feel about that, but maybe you would well, tell us. Well, I'm very sympathetic to the point of view, actually. And, and, and it was a long time ago that, that I was at a playwrights conference in Perth where there's a, an Aboriginal activist called, who, called Gary Foley and Gary was not a really touchy-feely <laughs> sort of a guy. He's quite tough. And uh, so there was all, all the playwrights sort of assembled there and he was on the stage and I guess the majority of us anyway were white. And he said something like, I know all you blokes, you really want to help, right? 
Well, I'll tell you how you can help. Don't write about us. <laughs> because we've had years of you know, ignorance and misunderstanding and misrepresentation. So in effect, what you've been busy doing is sort of colonising our imaginations. And it would be better, we've got a lot of stuff to sort out so we can do it without you. Um, and I thought what he was saying was, I thought, okay, fair enough. And I kept that in my mind for a long while. So this is a conversation about appropriation, yeah. in a way. And it just went on so long in my life that I thought, my God, you know, I'm 70 and if I want to look at my work, not once have I really seriously full con confronted this. And so then my, my feeling is, uh, well, I can go and listen. I can go and find out. If I could, you know, at Bacchus Marsh in the, in the garage there, up above the spare parts department, there were not an awful lot of French aristocrats hanging around talking about the price of an FC Holden. And so when it was time to write Parrot, Olivia, ran Olivier in America and I needed to invent one, I did. Yeah. So, mind you, there were, and there were aristocrats who actually read that. There actually, there actually was a Tocqueville who I met, right, who had read it. Um, so I guess I, I, I understand why they think that. I understand that the general course of most things in life are mediocre. Most representations of others are bound to be mediocre. And I think if I was an indigenous person reading continually the representations of me and my life, I'd be mad and I'd say, don't do it. And I just think that it's essential that it be addressed, that it's really got to be addressed with you know, respect and humility and patience. And then in the end, you find that the, you've created characters that are real people and um, there isn't an issue. And then it stops being a conversation about appropriation yeah. and it becomes a way of thinking about writing or storytelling as having a morality or having a, a kind of ethical context that, that you mentioned a couple of times that, that you wrote it because you felt you should. Yes. Is that a good reason to write a novel? Well, it's it, it, a thing one shouldn't, shouldn't confess to, I think. You're um, among friends here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I'm not talking about you, darling. I'm not. Um, well, an another, <laughs> way, another way of asking it, I suppose, is um, was there an impatience, a feeling that somebody should? Is there a waiting? And, and well, other people were. I mean, yeah. in, there's certainly a whole generation of indigenous writers who are, who are, are coming up through the ranks who are sure. not necessarily being published, you know, you know London publishers are not, not points. Eh? Yeah. So th there's a blockage in the metropolitan centres that are not Australian in publishing these people, uh, but they are coming up. But the question of, of me and ethics, yeah, I think I've always thought it in, in that sort of a way. And I think when I was younger, I really thought that uh, in terms of sort of changing the way people thought and of changing the world. And now, in my decadent old age, I'm really thinking of creating, making a work of art, yeah. uh, but that is informed by ethical. Is that, are the two things not entirely compatible and when they're done well, inevitable? I mean, most of the big changes in people's lives, I think, even people who are interested in politics and campaigning and signing petitions and all of that, which is very important, but 
we can have huge changes happen to us through the experience of storytelling. Yes, it's, it's true. But you're talking to somebody who always thought that the, that the political activist led the superior life. And, that the, and that that's what really, if I was a seriously brave individual, that's what I should have been doing, not writing. Right. Sorry. I'm really glad that you didn't. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> I, I, I just said, well. I, I, I knew I could have fixed the Australian Communist Party, but I didn't. Uh, I, it's, uh, anyway. I, I, I think the whole reason that we have come up with this strange thing that we do as, as, um, as humans tell each other stories is because there is some need to transcend our group, our family, our self. It's, it's very hard to just be ourself. It's yes. very hard to carry that around. Yes, it is. And there's some liberation that comes from yes. putting all that down and looking at the world through somebody else's eyes. And we might go nuts if we didn't. Like, I think that's what novelists are for. If we didn't, we might get nuts. Don't you think? Yeah. Okay. Well, thankfully, that hasn't happened where you live in, um, in America. But anyway, I, I really don't want to talk to you about that because I feel sorry for anybody. Who, anyone who, who comes to Europe now who's ever been in America has, has suddenly you have to explain what's happened. Yeah. And you have to tell the only true history of the Trump gang. All, all of a sudden. Um, I want, before we open it up to the audience, maybe just to ask you some questions about your process because I'm just really fascinated about how that works for you like the first page of this novel when you sat down to write was it the first page is it a sketch is it characters is it lines of dialogue what what comes to you first in order to sort of get the get yourself out of the, the starting blocks well I'm sure it can't be all that different for you, but maybe it is. It's a very muddy, muddy process for me. And I, I, I go into a period of reading a lot and thinking a lot, making notes, yeah. making notes that are typed so badly and spelt so badly. And if you looked at it, you would think it was another language. Uh, I once made the mistake of showing one of my students, this, this poor student looked so appalled that his, his professor would write this. Um, so I enter into a sort of a, 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 I really believe, of course, you know, as we all do, you know, in the unconscious and sort of being in touch with just writing without thinking a lot. But at the same time, I, 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 I'm sort of drawing diagrams and thinking about the structure of the novel. And when I think I know a little bit, I find a way to try to start it. Yeah. And um, What is that, though? Is that a person? Is it... I, you know, I've got the conflict, I've got the two maps at the same place, now I need okay. a voice. Well, I made lots of notes and sometimes within finding those, the three characters, you know, Titch and Irene and Willie Bakhuber, the next door neighbour, who thinks he's German. Um, and I made lots of notes from their point of view, from, you know, objective. Um, and, and I got to... I made a really sort of a rash, intuitive decision at a certain stage where... I got to a stage where if I was going to do first per any first-person narratives that I've used, then I really should have had first-person narratives of the three of them. But I didn't want to do that. And I chose, I felt sort of almost at random that it would be Willie and Irene who would tell the story, which leaves Titch, who's a major player, as somebody whose actions are reported. And, and, and that decision, which really was intuitive, affected the whole book and what the book 
was, but it gave me pleasure. As I moved forward and I could see that it was working and I found out that that was working. Um, Sometimes, I mean, there are are things in this book um, which are points of where I begin. There's a a scene early where Willie first meets his next door neighbours and uh, he's there really waiting for something to happen in his life because he's screwed up so many times and he has this sort of conviction that something magical will happen. And firstly, he sees this beautiful car arrives in the the place next door and he hears voices and he goes out into the shed and from under, it's a Ford, from under the Ford on a concrete floor, these two figures on those, you know, those mechanics trolleys, what do you call them? You know, the, 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 if you want to slide under the car and you're going to do this, so from up, under the car come these two trolleys come shooting out from under the car and on one is Titch and on the other is, is Irene. They're both sort of tiny. They're sort of beautiful and magical in a way. They're each holding a spanner, <laughs> like icons almost. <laughs> and... and, and um, that moment was, to me was really seeing those characters. Right. So at the begin, there was a way I began the book with you know, Willie going to the moment where that happens. Uh, and that's very early in the book, but it isn't the opening of the book. And the opening is you know, Titcher meeting Irene. And um, sorry, I'm rambling. No, no, no. So, so you, you have the, the, the kind of muddy first draft yeah. that might have some very vivid images, the two people in the yes. so on. Yes. What's the second draft? Is it trying to fix everything? Or there isn't a second draft. Right. Oh, well, there is a second draft. There are things that are labelled second draft. But there's a whole series in, the, in what we might call the first draft where chapters are written and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and then new chapter. I don't know. It's a mess. <laughs> do you have um, an ideal also, reader? Why do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> I know you're, you're, uh, you're married to a very wonderful editor. Oh, and yes, that's a really important part of what happened. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, seriously, yeah. it's sort of an un- unbelievable uh, occurrence that, that, that I find myself married to really one of the best editors in the world. And I've, I've worked with a number who are regarded as the best, and she's way heap better and also you know when you tell people that you know you're showing your raw pages just off the press to your wife and so what's happening is his wife running him is 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 the is the process of somebody like that reading them you know the, the the person controlling them and imposing their will on the writer because that's the great terror all writers have that somebody's going to impose their will on them. Um, she's just a splendid, intelligent reader as other writers who've worked with her know and she can read at an early stage like that and really just basically keep you alive with the odd intelligent comment which might affect the shape of that chapter and makes you think more about what you're doing but it's never intrusive, never controlling and we never argue. I have occasionally been paralysed by fear at the very end of the process when she says, well, what do you really want? Do you want the truth? (laughs) So at that moment, then she will take the manuscript away and read it before she says a word, 
read it three times and come back with it filled with hundreds of awful little post-it notes. And uh, I, 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 fa I, faced, I faced those meetings with some anxiety because I don't think she's going to be stupid about it. And I don't think she's going to be controlling about it either. She's just going to say how she read it. And, when I, and so and I'm sit li listening to her thinking, okay, okay, yes, yes. Okay, I know what to do. I know what to do. Yes, yes. And occasionally I find something where I have no damn idea what I could possibly do. And I suppose I, I might get a little depressed or temperamental at that moment. I find that very hard to believe. Hard to believe, yes. Um, so, so there's Francis, and I, I know, you know, in all sincerity, I know how important um, Francis is as an early reader of your work. But beyond Francis, is there, is there someone else? Is there someone behind your shoulder? For whom you are you mean writing, the ideal imaginary reader. people. Yeah. You mean my imaginary assistant, Troy? I'm, I mean, when you when you get to um, the sequence where the race begins, and we go into that gear, are you saying, um, oh, "I think the reader would really love this," or are you writing that because are, are you the reader? Yeah, I think I'm the reader, and, I, and so I would express it really more in terms of what the book needs. And I guess it's, you know, that then posits a reader. And, but I don't, I'm, I'm thinking about what, what the rules of structure of the piece should be and what's necessary to make it balanced and move along. So no, I think I would be very thrown uh, by trying to imagine a reader. I think I'd get resistant. <laughs> might go the other way. It might go the other way, yeah. Um, what's the, the best time in writing a book? What's the best phase? I think, well, I think generally anything's better than now. <laughs> uh, you think at the end, well, I can't wait to have this published and I hope I get some nice reviews and, uh, and they put me in a hotel with a good minibar. Um, but really the best part of it is, I suppose the best part of it's really, well, there are a number of best parts. The best part when you know you've, you've got an idea and you start, it's very difficult. It's always much more difficult than you remember. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe like childbirth in that way. <laughs> and, 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 and then there's a period in the middle of it where you know you're writing a book and you know you've got 100 pages and you're doing it every day and you know the book in the end is going to work. So that's quite nice. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think one of the nicest the bit that's like publication but isn't because it's private is that you've probably got 10 people in the world who you know could, you could trust to read your book. And when they read your book and they like it and they have things to say about it, that's a pretty wonderful moment. And I suppose that's, that's sort of publication, isn't it, really? At that, it's before you, you know, you're not, your friend doesn't read it and you don't go home and say, God, this dickhead did this to me in the, in, in the New York Times or something. It's, it's, it's friendly, it's supportive, and it's honest. So it's good. Right. And then it comes out. And then it comes out. And, and there are reviews. Yeah, yeah. And in this case, the reviews have been very, very good and yeah. full of love and admiration and people saying it's not just your best novel in years, but perhaps in decades. See, I can find of, offense in that. Well, this is the thing. <laughs> this is the thing. I mean, yeah, some, I sometimes the kind of very warm yeah. review yes. is much worse. <laughs> um, 
as, as John Banville says, you know, the awful thing about having a book out is that there'll always be some friend who finds an excuse to ring you up and tell you about the good review, you know, that there'd be something in it that you don't like. But all of that process, can you... Do you put the armour on? Do you not read them? Do you... I'm not meant to read them. So what's meant to happen is that Francis, you know, who's published many writers and read their reviews so they don't get upset, is there, she says, to protect me and, 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 and to read the reviews and she can then tell me which ones I should read, right. <laughs> which ones I would be better to forget. And it's a very, very good scheme. Uh, the, the only difficulty is, you see, that she sleeps quite well and I, I'm, often, I'm often awake at four in the morning and if the iPhone's just beside the bed, I can sort of go online and see what's going on. So if there's a review that goes online at four in the morning... Yeah, 4.01, you're, uh, you're there. Uh, oh, 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 three or two or any time, I'll, I'll see it, you see. So I do try to skim over the bad ones. I too try to wait till she wakes up so she yeah. can see them. Great. Um, it, well, it's marvellous, Francis, that you've had such an easy time with this book because <laughs> all the reviews have been so, so, um, so wonderful and, um, and for reasons that you will understand when you read this uh, magnificent book yourselves. So, look, time is the enemy. It's quarter past eight. We have 10 or 15 minutes for questions if anybody has um, question now is the time and don't be shy yes there's somebody just down the back there and we we have two microphones i think there's a person with their hand up just there hello um my name is durville and i just want to say thanks peter i've loved your work for a long time and i love oscar and lucinda particularly and i'm just wondering what the genesis for theophilus was i think that's oscar's dad so was he based sort of on a real person or was it just your imagination or, you know, what was his genesis maybe? Well, he, he the, the, the um, God, I've forgotten the name. Who wrote Father and Son? Um, Goss. So it's Edmund, it's Edmund Goss's father uh, is where I found this person. And so there, there are, I, which the book does acknowledge, and so, the, for instance, the, the scene that Joe was talking about with the, with the Christmas pudding is something that comes out of Edmund Goss's life where his father snatches the, the Christmas pudding out of his mouth. But it, it arises out of a much, the much more sort of ticky, technical sort of issue that novelists are facing all the time where, where I wanted my clergyman uh, to be Anglican because that was how I was raised and that's what I knew about. Uh, I grew up in heated churches, actually, but um, <laughs> the um, <laughs> you know the uh, the, heat, the heat is actually on. And that's the really funny thing. They, you, you have to have won the Booker Prize twice to get the heat switched on, and this is this is as good as it gets. Anyway, we invited you all to warm up the room, so thank you. Um, but I wanted him at once to be an Anglican and in some way a rebel. That's a very hard sort of thing to conceive of. And uh, so I gave, had him come from a fundamentalist Christian family like Edmund Goss did. And, that, and so that's how Theophilus the the exists. A man, a man who thinks you know, God put dinosaur fossils on earth to puzzle people. 
Anyone else? Yes, just down the back there, please. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I love uh, all of your books, but the one that uh, most struck me most recently was Amnesia. And I'm just interested because you said that in another life you might have been a politician. I couldn't believe as, you know, a person who's fairly politically literate that I knew nothing of that episode in Australian political history when you almost lost your sovereignty. Yeah. And, uh, and the way that you entwined that story then with a kind of more modern, you know, uh, hacking computer thing. It was just genius. But I, I'm just interested in your own interest in that topic as a thematic for a novel. Okay. Thanks. So for those, for those of you who haven't thought or don't know about this, in uh, 1975, the United States government conspired to overthrow the Australian government of Gough Whitlam. Uh, for many, many years, uh, you, if you said that, you were a Chardonnay-sipping fool and a, and a paranoid, delusional conspiracy theorist. But I think now, when this book, Amnesia, which deals with this period, was published in Australia, to my great astonishment, I went from radio station to radio station, from this to that to that, and it wasn't until the very end where I, where I got sandbagged by a right-wing television show that... that I, no one was arguing with this as an account of events. Um, and the thing that about, uh, about those events was that in a funny way they were, they were so denied. They were, I mean, Mr. Murdoch certainly, certainly played his active normal role in this. Um, and but when it was all over, when it was happening, there's such a normal, enormous denial of what had occurred. Um, it, it was like many things in life. It was quite complicated. Um, it, you know, it couldn't happen with, with, without um, some parliamentary shenanigans, uh, by some breaches of precedent and protocol, by replacing a Labour Party senator with a Liberal Party senator. So there was a loss of a majority in the Senate, and then. You, so these are things that the, you don't need the CIA to do these things. <laughs> I mean, um, Anyway, they succeeded finally in overthrowing the Australian government and it was sort of generally denied. Uh, so I wanted to write about that because it was very interesting living in the United States. And I say, yeah, you guys, <laughs> you guys, you don't know what you're responsible for and what you do. And um, one of the interesting things about the, 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 the reviews for the book, which outside of the United States, were, 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 I would say, were generally very fav favorable, inside the United States were terribly confused. Because here was I saying in a novel that the US government had, and CIA had conspired to overthrow the elected government of Australia. And when they went to the archive and they looked at the New York Times, <laughs> there was no account of this in the New York Times, which meant that if you're a book reviewer in the United States, are you gonna break a story? <laughs> Uh, from 1975, or are you just going to think the, the writer is a, uh, is a lunatic, or you got not know what to think. So I had really hoped that the novel would have some social impact in the sense that Americans who read might actually see what they'd been complicit in. And the sort of outrage that I expected didn't occur then, but I saw it quite recently when Americans were totally outraged to see the Russians might have interfered in their elections. 
I think you guys, God. Um, so it had no impact uh, in any of the ways that I might have dreamed of. And, uh, but I still, with, in, 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 with these recent events, I keep on thinking, oh God, I should write the book again. Um, so, okay. Anyone else? Yes, there's somebody just two-thirds of the way down. There we go. Um, your work has often been adapted into other media for the screen and the sta also the stage. Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience of, seeing, of having your work um, adapted and, uh, yeah, and that process and that experience? Uh, well, I've had all sorts of different experiences. Uh, I think the, 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 there was a film made uh, by a then friend of mine, Ray Lawrence, who, who directed uh, from Bliss, which we wrote together. And uh, I was wildly confident. You know, I, I shudder to think about how confident I was that I could write the screenplay. And when it was, and when it was all done, I realised that I'd sort of thrown out you know, the, the, the core of bliss really is a person, a complacent, bourgeois, advertising executive in a provincial city who thinks the world is just fine and lovely, has a heart attack, has a really awful post-operative experience, uh, nearly dies, sort of does die, has an out-of-the-body experience. And when he comes back, the world is the same, but he's seeing it differently, and he, he becomes convinced he's in hell. So this, is a, this has really got quite a serious political bone to it. <laughs> but in the, the, somehow or other, all that seemed to have disappeared completely in the film. So I, I can blame the director for all sorts of things in that, and, and partly for that, but I have to blame myself too. And, and <laughs> my fault. Um, I worked with, um, for a period with, with vendors on a film called Until the End of the World. And um, when I first met him, we had lunch in London and he took three hours to tell me the story of the film. And I thought, doesn't this guy know about the movies? You know that if you, if, if you have a long, that's gonna be a 12 hour film. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I worked with him in that. I was like, I was sort of, uh, you know, he'd made a lot of films. This was $23 million, which was more than the budget of all the films he'd ever made put together. And I thought, well, they'll make him shoot the script. <laughs> and uh, I, I was, you know, I was sort of like, um, I, I was the second or the third wife. You know, he wasn't gonna cheat on me and he wasn't going to do all those dreadful things that he, he's known to have done. Uh, I don't mean that he's a dreadful person, because he's not, he's a really lovely person. But he's a, he's a film director. He's a willful guy. He, he, he overcomes all obstacles to do the thing that he wants. And if he has to pick up a screenwriter here and then ignore him later, then he will. Um, so Vim made the film that Vim wanted to make. And um, I had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, it was my first visit to the Kimberley, which where this book is set. Um, we drank a lot of fabulous wine and uh, had a lot of good times together. But it's his movie. And uh, at the very beginning, I was, I, I, I was thinking, you know, I'm gonna make this, it's gonna be such a good film, and he's gonna get all the praise, and uh, I'll be forgotten, 
you know, but in the end, it was his film. <laughs> and uh, not mine at all. It was never going to be my film. Okay, I'm going to ask Peter to read a short bit just to finish with, but we, if we have one more person who wants to ask a question, we'll have time for one. There's one? Yeah, just <laughs> at the front. There's a person. <clears throat> Appropriately to end, what have we got to look forward to? What have we got to look forward to? In your, in your writing. In your work. Oh, <laughs> not, not <laughs> Thank God, I thought you were talking about Donald Trump. Oh. Um, I was actually going to see if there's a Bible left over. <laughs> well, I don't, I, I'm trying to do something. I've got a hundred pages. And, um, if I told you anything, I'd only confuse myself and lose confidence immediately when I saw, when I saw the doubting look on your face. You know, I think, uh-uh. So that's why, that's why I but really don't say anything. Something on the way. Yeah, there's something there. There is a better. There's about a hundred pages. It's getting better. And um, Francis, have you seen it yet? Oh yes. Okay, Thumbs up here. Right. Right. Okay. So. Maybe you set this up for us. So this is Irene Bobs. Uh, uh, they're as far up on, as, as Queensland now. Soon they'll be in Townsville. Um, and she needs to have a pee. So the car stops. And, and she finds, she goes up beside a creek where, where, where a, tree, a tree has fallen and revealed a, a crater in the, in the soil. How awful, sorry. <laughs> That's my trick, by the way. Don't do that again. So, okay. Okay. Uh, sorry. Okay. So I went a long way up the creek amongst a nest of broken sticks and leaves and timber smashed up by the floods. I carried our little garden trowel until I came upon a huge tree ripped out by its roots so it left a crater six feet deep. That saved a lot of digging. I teetered over the crater, naked as the day, clinging to a mud-crusted tree root. My call of nature was just a whisper. On the crater walls, only a foot from the surface, I saw the roots had grown around dead bones. The first crumbled in my hands and I saw there were so many others, like a graveyard, sickening. That is, these were not animal bones. There were so many, they must be blacks. I extracted a human jawbone. I retreated. I rushed back into my overalls. And I was an interfering woman. I climbed down into the excavation where I was able to lift a human skull from the broken soil. It was just a tiny thing, as fragile and powdery as an emu egg. I was a mother. I knew what it was to hold a tender child and I knew this must be a little boy and all these bones around him must be his family. He was quite clean and very light, and it seemed he might turn to dust if I was clumsy. 
So I tucked the digging tool in my back pocket and held him in both hands and then carried him as carefully as if he were a bowl of water back through the dull shrubs and grasses to the car. Thank you. Thank you.